Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque Podcast, your friendly history special. We are your hosts, Gemma. Hi. And Natalie. Today is the anniversary of the White Ship Disaster, the sinking of the vessel that carried the heir to the English throne, William Etheling. His death in 1120 signaled the end to the direct line of succession of William the Conqueror, as well as the end of the Anglo-Saxon ways in England. This tragedy also marked the beginning of the anarchy, the first English civil war. Our guest today, Chris Riley, will tell us more. Welcome, Chris. How are you doing? You okay? Hey, good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. I'm paraphrasing the Tudors, the TV show. So let's go back to the very beginning. On the throne is Henry I. Who is he and how did he become king? Yeah, so Henry I has been king of England since uh, the year 1100. He is the youngest son of William the Conqueror, who I'm assuming at this point most people know um, who he is. Um, He has a couple of sons, two of them eventually become king of England. Um, Henry becomes king after his older brother, William, William II, or William Rufus, as he's more commonly referred to. But he does also then have another older brother, which is even more confusing, called Robert, who is the Duke of Normandy, but uh, for one reason or another never becomes king of England. Everybody has has a fight about it almost constantly for, you know, 20 years. And, you know, Henry eventually beats his older brother, Robert, and puts him in prison. And he's in prison for 20 years in in Wales. But Henry's a, a pretty successful king, I would say. He inherits the throne in a rather suspicious way. He he was on a hunting trip with his with his brother William, who was William II at this point, the king. And completely coincidentally, if you ask Henry I, um, his brother is shot in the chest with an arrow and pretty much dies instantly on the spot, allowing our Henry I to run down to Winchester, becomes king. And nobody ever asks him about it because... You know, why would you want to ask Henry how he became king? So, so perfectly for him. But um, in a sense, he wasn't meant to be king at any point. He he probably never intended to inherit the throne. His, his father certainly didn't think that was the case you, when the conqueror died. Ironically, Henry was the only son who was by his bedside and, you know, tried to tend to his father as he died from a, a womb that he got from falling into the pommel of his horse. But he, he only gave him some money, which I would I would take some money right now. 11th century, you wanted land. And um, Henry actually bought some land. He bought the Cottontown Peninsula in Normandy from his brother Robert and built a little power base and basically practiced being being a king, I think, uh, at this point. And eventually, like I said, he, he becomes king after his brother William is killed in the New Forest. Um, and I think most people are actually pleased about that. As awful as that sounds, William wasn't a very popular king. Whereas what? Henry, this is brand new information. <laughs> yeah, William II is nobody's favorite king. No. Um, he was his father's favorite, uh, named after himself, named after him and became king when he had an older brother, but he fell out with the church a lot. And that's the one thing you're not supposed to do. So he, <clears throat> his, his end was fine and people were pretty happy with, with Henry I on, on the throne. Henry does a lot of good work at the start of his tenure on the throne. He marries Matilda of Scotland, one of the many people in this episode that are going to be called Matilda, just a bit of a disclaimer. <laughs> and she's important for many reasons, but because she is mainly because she is the uh, descendant of Alfred the Great through Edmund Ironside. She directly links the Normans to the old House of Wessex, which for a lot of people, the conquest of 1066 is still very fresh. Um, you know, Henry I is born in Yorkshire, 
not far, too far from me, as it's being devastated by William the Conqueror. So, you know, there's a lot of people in recent in recent memory, the conquest is very recent to them. So to marry back into this Anglo-Saxon family, he, he does a he does a very good job and he and he seems to settle things quite well. Um, he's a great administrator, but he's also incredibly cruel in the sense that he was a medieval king and he kind of had to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you pair good administration with calculated cruelness and, and you tend to get a pretty good, pretty good reign. And and Henry the First, I would say, is a is a is an example of that. Um, one thing he's not very good at is fathering legitimate children, which in a sense is is the whole point of this story is Henry only has two legitimate children. He has a son, William, also called William Adeling or William Aethling, um, which is just another name. It's kind of a, a half title meaning um, noble birth or, you know, next in next in line, that kind of thing. And he has a daughter called Matilda, who becomes Empress, Empress of the Romans, later referred to as the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire, sorry. She's wonderful and deserves her own episode at some point. She's um, she's a, another favourite of mine. But um, yeah, he only has these two children. I say two children, he has two legitimate children. And as far as I know, and anyone can correct me if this is wrong, he still holds the record for the most illegitimate children in English and British royal history. He has at least, I think it's 22, 24 illegitimate children. Yeah, they stopped um, counting after that. Yeah, I, I, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. What's the point? It's and this is in the period where yeah. everybody has the same name. So there's a couple of Richards, a couple of Robert, a couple of Matildas, and that's it. They run out of names already. This isn't a problem necessarily. This isn't a problem for a long time until we get to the 25th of November in 1120 when mm-hmm. Henry's only son, only legitimate son, sorry, William, is taking a trip back to England after a trip to to France with his father. But yeah, that is, I guess, why we're here, isn't it? So through his mother, another Matilda, Henry was related to the French royal family. So his father, Henry's father, William the Conqueror, Henry's mother is Matilda of Flanders, which again links him back, like you said, to the to the French throne. Everybody's related. Every single person <laughs> is related at this point. So Henry comes from phenomenal stock. He mm. comes from the, the the powerful Duchy of Normandy, these these ex-Vikings. And like you said, through his mother, through through uh, Flanders, he's, he's related to the French throne, which is, again, another complex matter um, in itself. It's it's an absolute it's a nightmare during this period because the French throne is just an absolute mess. Mm. But yeah, his his children then inherit all of that mixed with the, the Anglo-Saxon blood of, you know, Edmund Ironside. Uh, you know, you've got Alfred the Great, Edward the Elder, all these, you know, all these wonderful people that Henry and then later his children can use as, in a sense, justification for their for their rule in England. What's the relationship between the French throne and the English throne like at the time? At this point, it's not what people necessarily think. You know, you think of the medieval period, you think England, France, constantly fighting, yada, yada, yada. That's later. That's pretty much because of what happens here. You know, the after effects of the white ship disaster are, you know, the Hundred Years' War and things like that. But at this point, the French throne, just to touch on it briefly, is not, like I said, what it is. It's not the kingdom of France that we see in a sense today. It is loosely controlled by a king, um, but the land in direct control is is around Paris, the Ile de France, that direct area. And then outside of that, you've got duchies and counties that are pretty much or 
autonomous. You know, the Duchy of Normandy is, is one of those. Where it gets complex is when the Duke of Normandy is also the King of England, because the Duchy of Normandy is a possession of the French throne. So the King of England has to then swear fealty for that possession, but they're both kings, so nobody wants to do it. And, you know, this problem reoccurs pretty much every time there is a new king, or every time the French throne decide they want to kick up a bit of a stink in England. You know, you have places like Aquitaine and Anjou and Maine and Brittany. These are all pretty much separate places. If you went on holiday to Brittany, you wouldn't be on holiday in France. You would be in Brittany as its entire in its, you know, in its entirety. At this point, the politics of England, France, Normandy, whatever you want to call it, it's it's all very messy. You know, you've got English nobles with land in Normandy, in England. They might owe fealty to the French throne directly for something else. It's it's all a it's much more mixed than I think we think it is. It gets much set more separate, and um, which causes problems of its own. But at this point, it's just very messy. So this is like a new family, fairly new family on the throne um, with a bloody background. How important is that detail to the story of the White Ship? I think it's actually really important. And that's a, that's a really good point to bring up because you know I've already mentioned that Henry does a good job of marrying smart. Hmm. He's the third king but from the second generation of Norman kings in England. You know, he's the son of an illegitimate son. If you ask me, had very, very little claim to the English throne. Um, I think there were people in 1066 with much better claims. But again, that's another episode. The idea of dynasty and maintaining a level of control through your own family is something that Henry was very interested in and keen to maintain. And ultimately, in the space of one hour on a cold November evening like it is tonight, his entire plan for the future was was destroyed. And ultimately, one of the effects of this is that the Norman dynasty all but dies out, especially in England. They have success in in you know southern italy and places like that but we think it's one line from william the conqueror to charles iii it really isn't it it jumps around all over the place and after the white ship we see one of these jumps it's subtle but it's there what was sea traveling like at the time because i mean i won't go on a boat now and i'm going to say it's probably better i have the same opinion i, I would rather not go on a boat ever again in my life if i could if i could have it my way but one of the interesting things about sea travel and the sea in this period is the mystery that's it's wrapped up in. People are terrified of the sea. You know, most people in England these days can swim, at least to the point where they could, you know, cross a pool or, you know, tread water for a while. In the 12th century, this isn't a thing. You know, it's not a pastime. It's not something people do for fun. The people that can swim are the ones that need to for, for work, you know, fishermen and people like that. That's it. So add that to the fact that nobody knows what's in the sea. For the most part today, we don't know what's in the majority of the sea. Apply that to all of the sea, and you've got this absolutely harrowing situation. I would never want to be anywhere near the sea now. I'm glad I'm almost exactly in the middle of England, because <laughs> even though you're no more, never more than 70 miles away from the sea here, I'd like to be 70 miles away. You know, there's, there's these stories of, um, you know, monsters and these great sea serpents and, and things that just live under the sea, because no one can, in a sense, disprove it. So, but unfortunately for the English nobility, in a sense, the English Channel, which we see as a bit of a barrier now, was a superhighway. Ships were going to and from because, like I said, people owned land on both sides of the channel. So sea travel was essential, it was necessary, and it was a lucrative business for, you know, for ship captains. 
yeah, people were as scared, if not more scared than, than they are now. And there was, and I guess it's important for this story is there were times of the year where you would not travel by sea, winter being one of them, you know, weather is more unpredictable. It's more dangerous because of the cold and things like that. So it was, yeah, the fact that this trip did happen and go so poorly, you know, people knew this was a possibility. So it was a double tragedy because it wasn't just something that happened out of the blue. It was like, well, this is why you don't travel in November by sea. Or at all. Honestly, I hate boats. I can't swim, actually. <laughs> this is why I don't like boats. I can't swim. I am terrified. Well, you're in exactly the same position as the 300 people that got on the white ship because, you know, as far as I know, no one could swim properly and maybe mm. one or two people could tread water. That that was yeah. it. Um, so let's get to the disaster. What is happening that the king and his children, well, some of his children are in France? 1119, 1120, Henry I and his son, William, who's an older teenager at this point in the in the prime of his life, gallivanting around France, giving the French king Louis the Fat, um, which is a brilliant name, um, a bit of a hiding. You know, one thing the English and the French are good at doing is fighting each other. And as much as I've said, it's not necessarily the case here. The, the immediate kind of years before this is happening. And Henry does a, does a great job, successful campaign, Borders are secure in Normandy, so they're taking the trip back to England, probably for Christmas. A Christmas court in, in England was was maybe where they wanted to be. And famously, Henry is offered a ship. He's offered a ship by a man called Thomas Fitzstephen. And, you know, he's built this brand new ship, brilliant white. It's massive. It's got these giant sails, you know, 50 oarsmen, which is, you know, three or four times as big as any contemporary ship. And he says, you know, I'd love to take you back to England because, you know, my father, Stephen, was the one that captained the ship, uh, the Mora that took William the Conqueror to England in 1066. Henry's very, very moved by this and says, you know, appreciate the offer, but I've got my plans. I don't want to change them. Uh, maybe out of some level of superstition, you know, we've touched mm -hmm. on sea travel being quite dangerous. I wouldn't want to change my plans at the last minute. Uh, and also, I just want to go home. So if I've already got my ship waiting in the harbour, I'm going. And that's exactly what Henry does. He gets on his ship and he goes. Um, he's in no rush. He's a, you know, he's already the king. He's got nothing to prove to anyone. So he just goes. Um, but he says to Captain Thomas, I have a son, take my son, you know, it can be his ship. You can, you can captain him. Um, that'll be a great honor. And obviously, um, Fitzstephen says, yes, this is great. As I've already mentioned, William is a teenager at this point. I think he's about 18. Um, obviously nobody knows anybody's birth dates at this point. Mm. So everybody's maybe 18, 20, but you know, what do most people do when they're 18, especially after they've just beaten the French king, uh, in battle is they have a bit of a party. And William is is no exception to that rule. Him and his friends, there's 300 people get on the white ship. It's probably not friends with all of them, um, but the vast majority are his kind of contemporaries, the, the knights and squires of his father. There is, you know, he, like you said, he, there are siblings there as well. There's half siblings. You know, Richard of Lincoln, one of his half brothers, Matilda of Persh, the Countess of Persh, is there as well. And they're all having a great time drinking, doing what teenagers and 20 year olds do. And they get the crew involved and there's essentially 400 people having a massive party, even to the point where the, the priests who turn up to bless this ship, who's essentially their job at this point, they get shooed away and everybody's laughing and the priests are like, well, you know, let's hope nothing bad happens because you know, it'd be awful if something <laughs> bad happened and then you could blame us. But eventually they decide, right, we're going to set off. And one of the goals, I guess, for this trip is to beat Henry I home. He's already set off a few hours before, um, but they're like, nope. We're going to do it. We're the, the new kids on the block. We're going to race past Henry and, and, and beat them back to England. But, you know, clearly, hence why we're having this conversation, things don't go well. So we are in 
uh, the harbour of Barfleur at this point, by the way, which is a very, very popular and, and normal crossing point from Normandy to England. It's kind of the the, the, the go-to place if you, if you need to get back. But one thing that Barfleur has about a mile out is a very well-known, and this is important, a well-known rock that sits in the middle of the bay called the Kielberf, which as far as I can tell in my very basic French just means the, the cow rock or the rock of the cow. Uh, anyone seen the cow and calf in um, Ilkley Moor? It's probably something like that. But it's this giant rock that sticks out of the out of the sea. Everybody knows about it. And yet this giant ship with 300 nobles on it um, is absolutely rocketing its way out of Barthler, smashes directly into this. So it's only about a mile out. So it's not too far away. People can still hear them on the ship. They think the cries for help are this party that's continuing. Um, I said it hits port side into the side of this giant rock that everybody knows about, especially the captain who has done this trip probably, you know, many times. And unfortunately, the ship obviously sinks and the one lifeboat that is on, William Adeling, is bundled into this ship as, you know, as into the lifeboat, sorry, mm. as the most prized possession on this boat. Yes, there are many nobles, you know, there's the Earl of Chester and, and people like that on this, but they have to get the heir of the throne of England and the and the Duchy of Normandy away. And they succeed. He's bundled in and sails away until he hears his sister, his half-sister, um, Matilda of Persh, in the water complaining how terrible of a man he is to leaving his sister in the water to drown. So obviously, like, you know, you would. He commands the ship is turned around, the boat is sh- turned around. And as Matilda is climbing into the boat, so is everybody else that's around him. And they pull the boat into the water and everybody, including William, the only legitimate son of Henry the first unfortunately drown in the you know november waters in the, the bay of buffalo so what started out as a successful campaign into a party into a race home ended up in the death of you know 300 people mm. um there's only two survivors initially and then one survivor at the end order vitalis who's a, a norman and anglo-norman Chronicler at the time is the main source for this. And he states that the captain, Thomas Stephen, initially survives and is holding onto the mast with a butcher called Berold from Rouen. And he is told they have a conversation. Oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever. Um, at least William got away. Unfortunately, he gets the news broke to him. And I don't know if this is necessarily true, but Audric Vitalis writes that upon hearing that, you know, he basically cost Henry I his son and heir, um, he let himself drown as to not live with the shame of this. And the only survivor of the ordeal is is Beryl the Butcher, um, who was only saved essentially because he was wearing um, animal skins. He was wearing goat skins with, you know, with wool and things like that. So he was able to survive the freezing temperatures. If anyone's been in the sea in England at any point in the year, it could be 35 degrees mm. and it'll still feel like, you know, the cold taps running. You know, to stay in the sea overnight, to only be saved in the morning, you know, he was close to hypothermia himself. So not necessarily the drowning, but the cold would have would have killed many as well. So overall, the worst thing that could have happened to that ship, really. Nothing nothing good came from it other than Beryl the Butcher surviving. Is all the stories from him then? Is that everything we know about it is from him? 
Yeah, as as is the case with with this period in general, um, the church is the main source for this. So you have Audric Vitalis, who is a monk. Um, his name's always fascinated me because he has this very old English first name, Audric, but then mm. this Latin Catholic supercave Vitalis, which is not his surname. He is born of England, but to Norman parents, or at least one of them was Norman. So he has this weird French, Anglo, Latin world that he lives in. But we have people like William of Malmesbury as well, who comments on this and, and writes his chronicles later. But Audrey mm. Vitalis is, is the man on the spot. He's writing as a direct contemporary. So he's usually a pretty good source. He's a good source for the for the Battle of Hastings and the Conquest. So yeah, we tend to we tend to go with uh, Audric. Um you talked about the priests and at the time people thought that was the reason for it because the priests didn't um, get to put the holy water on it. Was there any kind of other like conspiracy theories or kind of legends that rose up afterwards? So one thing that I think would make a great Netflix TV show, so if anybody's watching this, I've wanted to make this for a while, just as a bit of a disclaimer. One of the most important things that about the white ship that I haven't mentioned yet is who didn't get on the white ship. So there's a man called Stephen of Blois. Anyone knows the end of this story knows who Stephen is. My least favourite king in all of human history, I think. He's woeful. Spoiler alert, he becomes king. <laughs> Stephen is the nephew of Henry I. He's a contemporary of his cousin William, and he was all planned to get on the white ship. He'd been on this campaign with his uncle and his cousins and his half-cousins and every, you know, the 350,000 kids that Henry I had. But he, at the last minute, decides, nope, I don't want to go on the ship. I've got stomachache. So he famously gets off and survives to eventually become king of England. So absolutely not saying that Stephen of Loire caused the white ship disaster but he very much benefited from it so if netflix want to create some horrendously historically inaccurate tv show about how steven killed william adeline there you go <laughs> but ultimately back to the kind of reality is everything at this point in history is is like divinely ordained and everything happens mm -hmm. for a reason you know that the, the wheels of fortune are constantly turning so you know was it because henry the first was cruel because you know, this is the guy that blinded and cut the noses off of his own granddaughters. This guy wasn't a nice guy to be around at all. You know, the fact that his his son had shooed away the priests was a sign that things weren't going to go right. And the church definitely said, I told you so. Um, as, as poor Henry had to mourn, you know, not just the death of his son, but, you know, as we touched on earlier, the death of his, you know, the future of his house is is currently at the bottom of the English Channel, along with his, many of his nobles, many of his, the up and coming, you know, next generation. A lot of them, you know, they, they, they passed away in an awful situation. But, you know, that's the nature of sea travel at this point. It was, a, it was terribly dangerous. I love that you say that, um, your least favourite Stephen when Henry's cutting off his grandkids' nose. He was a good king, though. <laughs> Absolutely. I appreciate efficiency, and Stephen is not efficient. Fair enough. Fair enough. He's rubbish. <laughs> when does Henry find out, and what does he do in the aftermath? Yeah, so Henry finds out, he gets back to England, he's mm. safe and sound, and then a few days later, the news is you know, starting to come across, you know, the ship, the shipwreck or the survivor at least um, has been found. And, you know, this awful tale has been told and they have to, you know, the, the nobility that survive and that are still in Normandy and England have to figure out how to tell the king as a father, as well as a king, the result of this horrendous situation. And they actually use a young boy to tell the king. I mean, nobody wants to tell Henry the first, you know, he, he cuts people's noses off. Um, so nobody wants to tell Henry that 
you know, he's 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 lost his son and all of his son's friends who were going to be important later on. Mm-hmm. So they use this young boy to tell the king because they think, well, he's not going to do anything to this to this young lad. And they're right that he doesn't he doesn't hurt this kid or cut his nose off or anything like that. But as I'm sure you can imagine, he was inconsolable. He cared deeply for William as a as a father and son, but also, as I've mentioned a few times, as as the future of the House of Normandy. And ultimately it, it destroyed his plans. Charles Spencer, who wrote the fabulous The White Ship, which is I can see behind you, great book if anybody's not read it. He theorized, in a sense, based on no evidence, and that's what he says. And I tend to agree that the reason Henry only had one son was because he'd seen what had happened to his father by having multiple sons. So in his head, he was protecting the dynasty by having one son to inherit everything. And that was great until he dies, because then he has no son to inherit everything, which causes even more problems. The heir to the throne died, and a couple of many, many kids. What about the other nobles that died and anybody else? How did that affect their lives and their futures? So I I think what this created is subconscious or indirect instability in the next phase of English history. You know, anyone that knows what happens a few years later is Henry I dies, he still has no son, and neither do many of the nobles who lost their children which leaves a bit of a power vacuum. And, you know, if there's less people to inherit and to support claims, then it's going to cause fighting. And that's exactly what we see. You know, we have a 19-year-long civil war between Stephen of Blois, who becomes Stephen I of England in 1135, and Henry's only other legitimate child, the Empress Matilda, who Henry declares his successor, not his heir, his successor, which is a very, very important fact that I think tends to get lost in translation. But yeah, the, the whole thing, I think it's William of Malmesbury says, and I'm paraphrasing horrendously here, but no ship has ever brought England more misery. This wasn't a tragedy at sea. This is 9-11. Hmm. This is one of the most important events of a, of, a, of a period of history. Losing a child is one of the worst things a, a parent can go through. To lose 300 people is, is absolutely abysmal. But to lose that and have no backup plan and everything be so flimsy, politically, it's 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 an absolute nightmare. So after it, Henry does try and have not have his heir, but have Matilda and her offspring take the throne. That's his idea. Or yeah. Have- so Matilda is married to Henry V, the Holy Roman Emperor, not Agincourt Henry V, who sadly himself passes away of cancer just after the White Ship. I think in 1125, if my history is correct. And she then is, again, an option for Henry. And much to everybody's disgust, including Matilda, he marries her to um, a man called Geoffrey of Anjou, who is very, very attractive and charismatic. And he ticks all the physical boxes, but he's 15 and a count. She's gone from the empress to a countess. And also, for context, the Angevins are the lifelong enemies of the Normans. And the, the, the Duchy of Normandy and the County of Anjou do not get on. But they very quickly conceive and have, have a son named Henry, after Matilda's father, Henry I. And I think, and again, echoing Charles Spencer again, that naming her as successor rather than heir was to act as a bridge between Henry I and who would become Henry II, her son, um, Henry Fitzempress. The idea of female ruler, like female monarchy, was just not on the table. It was not something that people were willing to discuss or even could conceptualise. Yes, there are 
contemporaries. Um, you look to the Holy Land, you've got queens of Jerusalem, you've got powerful duchesses and count countesses in Germany and in Italy, but a queen? It, it, that's a whole other thing. The word queen is a whole other argument in itself. You know, Matilda throughout the anarchy doesn't even try and become Queen of England. She's only ever given the title Lady of the English. Well, that's because the word Queen and the title of Queen was a job title. It wasn't a female equivalent of King. There was a specific job tied to that. So there are so many levels to what the white ship caused in Matilda that caused the anarchy, um, which was the civil war between her and Stephen. But yeah, I think Henry I really saw, he was like, I'm going to hold on long enough just so Henry, who was born in 1130, so five years before Henry I dies, Henry's born. Um, he's like, I hold on long enough just so I can make this child my direct heir, my successor, male heir, with his mother acting as regent while he comes of age, everything will be fine. But obviously it wasn't fine. And his nephew Stephen usurps the throne and causes all sorts of problems and doesn't let Matilda be Lady of the English, which I think would have been better. With her sex, the only obstacle, was there any other obstacles that maybe she created or the nobles created, or was it just to do her sex? Yeah, so just even just to make it even better, there was a there was a whole other chap called another William, William Cleto, who was the son of Robert Curto's, who is the eldest son of William the Conqueror. He does die before the anarchy, but just relatively soon before, and he is seen as a viable claimant to the English throne and it would have been a nightmare if he was still alive as Henry I dies in 35 because that's another male claimant um, that could potentially get in the way of Matilda but yeah it wasn't just the fact that she was a woman as, as silly as this sounds it was the fact that she wasn't a man as well because there were there were gender roles and then there were gender roles on top of those which were even more ridiculous she couldn't act too much like a man because that wasn't improper but the fact that she was acting like a woman meant she could never be a king you know that's all wrapped up again in in horrendous misogyny but mm. she managed to do the one thing that rulers of England have, have always tried to avoid which is annoying the city of London so we'll fast forward out of the white the white ship disaster to the 1140s. Um, 1141, she's just about to be crowned Lady of the English. The anarchy's over, everybody's happy, hip hip hooray. And she manages to annoy the citizens of London. Um, and I'm quoting here with her arrogance and her male bravado. She's trying to be too much of a king. And she gets chased all the way out back to Oxford and she has to escape over a frozen lake and ultimately at this point there's no chance that she will ever be able to claim the throne again and this is where I think she does the most intelligent thing she could have done at the time which is put all her effort into her son Henry who would eventually become Henry II essentially kind of in his early years declares himself as his grandfather's heir to get the political class back on side. The political, the, the nobles and the elites at this point are very, very fickle and they seem to jump from whichever side to, to, the, to the other, whichever side seems to, to benefit them the most. Very, very similar to, to what we have today, unfortunately. But um, getting real support and a real power base for Matilda was, was difficult. Um, she had a brilliant commander, in Robert of Gloucester, who was another half-sibling of hers, another child of um, Henry I. He would have made a great king himself, but the fact that he was illegitimate, even though it's only two generations since William the Conqueror, he could never inherit the throne. It would have been seen as just as improper as Matilda. But once she lost Robert of Gloucester, she was even, even further up the creek as such. 
again, the anarchy is um, is such a mess, and ultimately it comes out of the white ship disaster. If the white ship disaster doesn't happen, we don't have the anarchy, which leads to so many things that we don't have, um, some good, some bad, but, you know, it's all a butterfly effect. So, in the end, Matilda's son gets the throne, and yeah. really... If you're looking at just, I mean, obviously all the people had died and stuff, but if you're looking at it, it didn't really change history a lot other than missing one sibling. So why do we think it's that big of a deal still? I think it's because if you look at the white ship disaster as the terrible tragedy that it is in Mm. isolation, that's exactly what it is. Like you said, and I'm a sucker for continuity. So the fact that it goes Henry the First, a little bit of a mess in the middle, Henry the Second, I'm happy. <laughs> but the part in there that we kind of miss is Henry the Second is Matilda's son, not William Adeling's son. If it's William Adeling's son, he isn't Angevin. He isn't a Plantagenet. We get mm-hmm. the new dynasty coming in that lasts for 300 years, and the Plantagenets or the Angevins are very, very different to the Normans. They're known for their fiery temper. They're apparently descendants from the devil himself, which is a wicked backstory all in itself. But I don't think you get the marriage of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine, which means you don't get the combination of the Duchy of Aquitaine with the Kingdom of England and you know this power couple controlling more of France than the King of France. You don't get this power struggle between Philip Augustus and Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, which ultimately means you don't get the Hundred Years' War, which ultimately leads to every single thing we know about Anglo-French relations. And history wouldn't have been boring, or we wouldn't have had bad things happen or mental things like the Hundred Years' War happen. We just had different things. But mm-hmm. you know, if you look at it as a... I try not to look at history on this constant path towards today, but you know, you take the white ship disaster out. I think you have a very different history. Anything could happen, of course. There's a there's an infinite amount of things that could happen, but what we know does happen is a direct relation of the 25th of November 1120, when the only son, the only legitimate son, dies, leaving a dynasty in complete and utter chaos. Do you think the French and English would have stopped fighting if they hadn't? Died. No, <laughs> no. Every I don't think anything stops. Nothing stops people fighting. <laughs> nothing. That's from from studying history. You realise that nothing stops people fighting. <laughs> um, and I'm sure they'd have found something else to scrap about. The only thing that stops England and France fighting is we've actually realised that that's not great and we're far too civilised for that now. Randomly decided that in 1903 and we became best friends. Hmm. Um, yeah, but, but yeah. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's a hundred years war two round the corner. I'm sure. Probably. Charles Spencer, you spoke about him previously, and I love the book as well. Mm. So he described the white ship as the medieval Titanic, and he kind of uh, went on like his own little crusade to try and find the ship and bring it back up again. Is that something you'd like to see happen? And what do you think we could learn from that? Absolutely. I think if we could find things like the white ship, or even you know the, the the tomb of Henry the First. We don't we don't re- we know roughly where he is, and we can we can talk about exhuming bodies and the, and the rights and wrongs of that all all we want. But it's one of those things that completely selfishly it would just be great to have. Mm. You know we we could we could have at least some part of the white ship in a museum, and you know we could tie something to to something physical, which which always helps with history. Yeah. I think that's one of the the main issues with getting people into medieval history is there isn't much to see mm. compared to 
you know, the early modern period, the Tudors, you have all this stuff. It's everywhere. You've got Hampton Court Palace. You can tell which side of the, the, the historical fence I'm on. Henry VIII destroyed most of the monasteries and, mm. you know, the abbeys and, and things like that. So to have any amount of tangible history to me would be great to have completely selfishly. But also from a, I guess, an archaeological point of view, it would be good to see how these ships were built. Yes, we have some examples, but we don't know that much. Um, another example, we don't have any contemporary medieval longbows. There probably wouldn't have been on the, any on this ship, but you know, if we can find things like that, it will really teach us more about other historical events. You know, the, the way we look at Agincourt is by looking at the longbows found on the Mary Rose, which sunk 150-ish years after. Think about what happens if you found a gun from 150 years ago and tried to compare it to the, you know, the war in Iraq. It's, it's not going to be the same. I think they know roughly where it is, and I think they've pretty much found it. Um, but if it's not safe to bring up, cool, leave it there. No. But if it is, let's get it up and get it in a museum. Natalie would be there in a minute, wouldn't you, hun? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all over historical, historic ships. <laughs> yeah. But we don't have many, yeah, because I think the oldest one surviving is probably the Mary Rose. Then we yeah. have the replicas of the Golden Hind, and then you have, yeah. you know, Endeavour, etc. But the originals, yeah, the Mary Rose, and you can't, you know, board it. You could just look at it and, you know, enjoy it visually. But it would be nice to at least see something from that period. But it's yeah. been a while, yeah. 903 years. Yeah, because we go from, you know, Viking longships, essentially, to the Mary Rose. Like you said, we, we don't know how much it changes in the middle. Yeah. We have a rough idea, you know, based on the Bayo Tapestry. It was still very much the the longship design, but there's so many things we don't know and having physical remains is probably the easiest way for us to to figure these things out. Yeah, yeah. it's br broken pottery and things, but it doesn't yeah. get us very far. <laughs> no. It's one of my favorite topics when it comes to medieval history because it's kind of a, a crux between the, the Normans and the Potaginus. And then from what Charles Spencer wrote as well, you have the goodbye to the Anglo-Saxon England a little bit there as well, because he said it's the last time the Etheling, the title yeah. is used because we now have Prince of Wales, but back then it would have been, you know, Etheling and all that. I, I read that book, I was just binge reading it yeah. I remember back in the day it's absolutely fabulous yeah. it's yeah. a great book and and Charles Spencer does a great job of framing it like you've just put it there as well it really is like a real if you pardon the pun watershed moment and it sits perfectly between the Normans and the Plantagenets and you go from the high medieval to the late medieval pretty much overnight and yeah and if you can have a favorite disaster or that's an awful thing to say but you know what i mean you know the white ship <laughs> would be mine because of how crucially important it is and it's surprising how little information there is out there it's not one of those things that you learn about at school in the uk mm. it's not something that's very commonly spoke about it's not the battle mm. of hastings it's not magna carta mm. and yet it's titanic yeah yeah it's just yeah. as important it sits yeah. right in the middle of those two events and without it you don't get magna carta you get something else but we don't get king john King John's the son of a minor count in somewhere in France, and he's rubbish at that as well. You know, history's completely changed by every event that does or doesn't happen. And the white ship is very clear. You can see where things could have could have gone very differently. Also, for you, it would be tragic because uh, without the white ship, you don't get Eleanor of Aquitaine. Exactly. Why do you think I'm an <laughs> for the white ship disaster? Yeah. I, um, it's very I'm very, very selfish. But yeah, you, you are right, because... There's no chance the Queen of France is mar marrying the, the son of the Duke of Anjou with no potential King of England. It's, it's just not going to happen. No. No. 
Charles Spencer phrased it as, yeah, like I said, it's Titanic with Game of Thrones yeah. together. And yeah, including sort of, yeah, the 9-11 sort of vibes. So yeah, that yeah. it needs to happen, Netflix or Paramount Plus, whoever's <laughs> I've listening. A, I've got half a script if anybody wants it. You come to me directly. I'm giving no more, no more away. Fantastic. I'm happy okay. to proofread it. Maybe. Awesome. That definitely needs to happen. <laughs> I'd watch that. What other books or documentaries would you recommend for MD wanting to know more? King of the North Wind, Life of Henry II in Five Acts um, by Claudia Gold. That is a phenomenal book about the period after this. But honestly, anything Dan Jones has written, anything Mark Morris has written, just read everything you can because Charles Spencer has written, in my opinion, the best book about the white ship disaster. There's, There's no getting away from that book. It's important to frame it, frame it in the conquest of 1066, you know, the third crusade that happens with Richard the Lionheart, Robin Hood, everything that's around this period. If you, if you, if you do that, it'll paint a, a wonderfully vibrant picture. But yeah, Alison Weir's phenomenal biography of Eleanor of Aquitaine, Matilda as well by Catherine Hanley, if I'm not mistaken, yep. is another brilliant biography as well. And I've probably written some stuff that you can read if you want to. That's always good. Um, you should mention famous. that first. I don't know. <laughs> I should have mentioned that first. <laughs> yeah, yes. but, um, but yeah, follow me if you want some more stuff. It's usually about Eleanor or Matilda. So yeah. So where can they find you if they didn't listen to your previous episode, which you should if you haven't? Yeah, definitely. You should listen to that. It was a good one. I enjoyed that one. Um, you can mainly find me on Instagram at Chris Riley History. I am on Twitter or X, but I don't really use that too much. I don't feel like you've got to follow me on there. But I guess the main bulk body of my work is through the Historians Magazine, which you can, again, find at the Historians Magazine or um, on thehistoriansmagazine.com. It is a you know an educational, accessible, hopefully quite entertaining, bi-monthly magazine. And there is a full medieval edition that came out earlier this year with some great stuff. I think there's something on the white ship in it. We've definitely written about the white ship before. Um, and there's stuff about Eleanor of Aquitaine, which I didn't write. Uh, Matt Lewis wrote. Um, so it's not me. Instagram's the place to be um, if you want to find my stuff. But uh, I'm always chirping on about Matilda, uh, about Henry II, Eleanor, their horrible children, um, and all that good stuff. <laughs> what is your favourite medieval ship and why? Well, that's a good question. I think I will go with the Mora, which I mentioned previously, which is William the Conqueror's ship that he essentially invaded England with. But I like it because apparently it was a gift from his wife, Matilda of Flanders. And I just think that's the best present to get someone. Like, <laughs> what do you want for Christmas? Don't really know. A ship? Yeah. Why not? It's so, yeah. a medieval Lamborghini. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, either that or the white ship, to be fair, because before yeah. it sank, it was probably brilliant. Um, and its sinking caused everything that we know in 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 history afterwards so yeah but yeah the Mora we'll we'll play it safe who do you think is the most underrated I don't even want to ask you this because I feel like you're going to say Eleanor of Articulating I promise I won't right okay who is the most underrated medieval king or queen underrated in terms of overall no one cares about or people don't seem to have much interested in I would probably say Eleanor of Castile who has this ridiculous effect on England that you can still see today in the in the Eleanor Crosses that you can see from Lincoln to London. Again, an amazing, amazing queen in her own right. Didn't but she introduce forks and things? Apparently, yeah. And glazed apparently windows or whatever, yes. yeah. Bathing. Um, yeah, we didn't really do that for a while though, still, did we? <laughs> Probably got told and went, nah, not for me. <laughs> you know who, I, someone who gets a really bad rep is Isabella of France, the she-wolf of France, the wife of Edward II. She's someone that gets a terrible 
reputation for pretty obvious reasons, but also yeah. she did a great job with an absolutely abysmal hand. So if there was kind of a bit of a rewriting of history, um, it would be Isabella of France. But there's so many, so many people in, in history that deserve a, a, a redo. Henry the First mm-hmm. is one of them. To mention a king, Henry the First is is a phenomenal administrator. You know, he could he could read, which is a ridiculous thing to say now is as a real talent. But at this point, mm-hmm. he was it was a real talent. He proper grafted his way up from the the youngest son of a duke to the to the king of England. But yeah, everybody, if you ask me, from the medieval period is underappreciated and underrated because there's still so much we can we can we can learn and and teach each other about them. My favorite rewriting of Isabella is when she had an affair with William Wallace. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, that's the work. That, that's that's the opposite of yeah. what I'd like to happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, because that implies that Edward III is is William Wallace's son, and mm-hmm. yeah, and then yeah, yeah, and then I've got um, William Wallace's grandson tattooed on my bicep, which I don't. Um, Technically, not William Wallace, Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah, even, which is even worse. There's yeah. a couple that could do with a bit of a redo. Definitely. What is your favourite medieval TV show or film? It's a little bit earlier than my usual stuff, but The Last Kingdom, in terms of TV show, is phenomenal. And a bit of a bit of an insight into me, if it wasn't for The Last Kingdom, I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast now because I watched it after... I, I'd not, I've not been in education for... I'm 30, so I've been out of education for, what, 12 years? I didn't go to uni until now. And I'd always loved history and I'd always had a passing interest in it. And I watched The Last Kingdom and I just found myself utterly obsessed with um, Ethelfled. And I started to write it down. And one thing led to another. Lockdown happened and an opportunity to just essentially write for a living occurred. And, you know, that that kind of birthed everything that I do now, which is so I'm very grateful to The Last Kingdom um, indirectly for essentially causing me to go and get a degree. But in terms of films, I'd probably say Kingdom of Heaven is brilliant but a knight's tale will always be my favorite um i watched it as a kid when it first came out i used to watch it quite a lot as i'm sure people can imagine uh, and i still watch it quite a lot now pretty much quote the whole thing line for line but yeah brilliant film kingdom of heaven is one of my favorite films i watched that about a million times like yeah, it's great. Year, i think it's great so... film it's not accurate for no. people that are wondering <laughs> no but what is accurate is is the combat and the scale of the combat it's as good mm. as you're probably going to see on film it, it, it's great it's great yeah. for that. No. It, it got me into um, like that side of the world history. Mm. So it did, because before, I mean, I, I mean, I like Scottish history. <laughs> you like where you are, don't you? But, um, yeah. and that's always interested me because I'm here, I could see the places and stuff. And then I like English history because it's easy to get to England for here. But um, I've never, yeah. I've never been to that side of the world. But then I can, <laughs> I know it's stupid because it's not there because it's a TV, it's a film. It made me kind of think, all right, I, I remember that in that film kind of thing. That was there and that was that queen or whatever. And for people that want to know, you know, people that like the Kingdom of Heaven and want more, mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend reading um, Catherine Pangonis's book, Queens of Jerusalem, another phenomenal historian who's written a phenomenal book. And that's great because that's exactly Kingdom of Heaven time yep. period uh and also for another slightly different way of looking at it uh, the mongol storm by uh, nick morton is another phenomenal book that shows you a completely different side of the crusades and and how you know the mongols appeared and completely changed the dynamic of the crusader states and egypt and all these places that, yeah two books i would definitely recommend if you when you finish the white ship those you next two the queens of jerusalem i think they're really underrated they don't get a lot of attention and they were amazing agreed yeah. Agreed. I mean, 
I, I adore them. Obviously, it seems to be the thing that I attach myself to the most. But, you know, you've got Queen Melisande and, and, mm-hmm. and people like her who just against the odds every time just somehow managed to, I don't want to say survive because they they thrived in times as well, but they, they truly did survive. And, you know, sons and fathers seem to have very, very short lifespans. So daughters became much more important than, in a sense, in the misogynistic world of the medieval world ever needed to be but you know mm. if it wasn't for those the crusader states wouldn't have survived as long as they did uh, for better or for worse and the geopolitical situation in the middle east would be probably even worse than it is today a thousand years later what ship town or person that has been lost to history would you like to find one person i would love to find she's not lost but eleanor of aquitaine's body has been utterly obliterated during the French Revolution. I'd love in an ideal world to be able to essentially put her back together and, and rebury her in her sarcophagus, not mixed in with Henry II and, and Richard I. I think it's a real shame that history has a way of destroying itself repeatedly. But in terms of people that we, we just completely lost, Alfred the Great, again, back to the Last Kingdom. He's a core character in that and he's played phenomenally, but we don't know where he is. We don't know where the father of the English nation is. There's so many people. Um, I've got um, The Bone Chests by Kat Jarman on my shelf to read, but that talks about, I think it's seven bone chests in Winchester Cathedral. And we know that Emma of Normandy might be in there and Canute might be in there, but we, you know, I'll, I'll read the book and let you know. But that's another the, episode. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I've given <laughs> you like already. six episodes. It's great. Um, <laughs> there are so many people that if we could find them or, you know, I'd, I'd love to find proof of Agincourt where it is the Battle of Bosworth Field. I'd love to find specifically where that was. And it's mental when you talk to people about medieval history who don't know medieval history and you say how little there is. The best thing, the best kind of way of describing it I've ever heard, and I will go to my grave never knowing who it was, and I can't remember, is looking at the medieval period is like looking through the keyhole at the Palace of Versailles because you can see straight forward and it's beautiful and there's all this gold and opulence, but you can't see what's left right above and below. And that's the stuff we'd love to see. And, you know, Alfred the Great's tomb, you know, that's one of those things. How do we not know where he is? Mm. Henry the First, how do we not know where he is? Yeah, he's in, he's in Reading Abbey somewhere, potentially under a school, I think. But yeah, I, I could, you know, it would be great, especially if we could somehow talk to them and ask them actually what happened and you know, <laughs> yeah. the Battle of Hastings, there's so many things that would be great to know, you know, exactly where these things were and happened and, you know, what the actual history is, not just what mm. Orderic Vitalis has told us, what the Venerable Bede has told us about the Saxon invasions or colonizations, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm going off on a tangent. So you want to watch the CCTV? Yeah, yeah. that's all yeah. I want. <laughs> Show me the, uh, yeah, pic- pictures already didn't happen. I know it's like a dodgy subject, but I kind of like the finding the bodies and giving them a proper burial because I think that's what they would want to be honest I know it's yeah. some people don't agree and they shouldn't move them or whatever um, I'm for it we were t- talking about one of the Scottish kings so he he was in the Tudor times James IV so apparently his body is in I might be getting this the wrong way around but I think I think his body is in a golf course right under a golf course right now and his head is in a pub I think we should leave him because that's like a Scottish dream for any yeah. Scottish man. So I think we should leave him. But anybody else, yeah, definitely find them, give them a proper burial. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, if if 
that's where I ended up. Even if it was just so people could talk about it. Yeah. Leave me put. Leave me yeah. bit. But yeah, don't if I'm in a car park by yeah. Richard the Third, get me out and get me somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What do you think of Philippa Wangley's new quest about the princes in the tower? One of those things, isn't it? The princes in the tower. It's highly controversial, isn't it? I, you know, I'm a fan of Matt Lewis's work, Nathan Armin's work. Everybody seems to have a different opinion on mm. Prince. I'm very excited to read uh, her new book, which is out as of recording in two days, I think. So it's not it's not too far away. It's probably it'll probably be out by the time people are listening to this. But don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna play the political answer and say I don't know. <laughs> also, it'd be great to know. <laughs> it'd be great to know for definite. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a documentary as well, I think. In yeah. Yeah. Four, I think. Yeah. 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 I'm a day off for that. <laughs> for that in the crowd. Brand new, brand new evidence. It's going to blow the, the case completely wide open, but we'll see. Might be good marketing. Mm. It, it better be massive. I hate it when you're disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me again. It's uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Please like, subscribe and share with your friends. Gemma and myself, you can find us on social media. The handle is at If It Ain't Baroque podcast on Instagram. And we have an account on the X of the Twitter where we are at Baroque podcast. And if you'd like to read our blog and find out more, please visit the website ifitaintbaroque.art. If you'd like to join me on one of my walking tours, and I have three at the moment, one about the medieval and Tudor monarchs, one about the Georgian and Windsor monarchs, and one about naughty London in Southwark, please join me. The website is reignoflondon.com and there will be links in the description of this episode. Thank you so much and see you next time.